You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. All right, folks, welcome to another episode of The Bible for Normal People. We have today a very special guest. Very. You have, you have no idea. No, this is... Uh, this is don't all say about no. Jared. This don't is all say about... no. You say special yes. guest and you say no. Such a, no, I don't mean special. <laughs> it's just Jared. <laughs> but yeah, just Jared's a center it. of attention again here for this podcast. For the first time. Yeah, always a center of attention, Jared, anyway. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com, promo code normalpeople. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com, promo code normalpeople for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com, promo code normalpeople. So uh, anyway, yeah, Jared, Jared wrote a book. The book is called Love Matters More, How Fighting to Be Right Keeps Us from Loving Like Jesus, which sounds like... The kind of title everyone would agree with, but I, that's probably not going to be the case. And we'll get into all that kind of stuff, perhaps. It's not a combative book, but it's still – well, you say God or Jesus or Bible or anything in the same sentence, and somebody's going to be after you. Right, so, anyway. right. Well, yeah. and it, it came yeah. from really wrestling with this phrase, which I'm sure a lot of you have heard in your lifetime, which is telling the truth in love, speaking the truth in love, which hmm. comes from Paul in Ephesians. And, you know, in the book, I go through the context of that. And I think it's, it's interesting what, it, what the context reveals about what Paul's really after in that passage and how it's been uh, ripped from the context and talked about as I would just say in my life when that's been said to me, it often felt like a weapon. Okay. Well, yeah, can, we, can you flesh it out a little bit more? Like what's, what is he not saying? What is he saying there in Ephesians? Well, if you look in, you know, I w- published it with Zondervan, so I'm using the NIV translation. And if you look at the header, it's about unity. And so, it's so ironic how this verse has been used to divide people for so long. <laughs> and it's in this context of this passage that's about unity and how we grow up into Christ who's head of all and how we have basically – the more this whole process led me to believe that Paul was after unity a lot more than anything else. He talks about it again and again and again in, in this passage as well. So, the truth is always in service to something else. In other passages in 1 Corinthians 13, a famous passage, it's in service to love. Right. And here it's in service to unity. So, it's always the tool. It's never the goal. Right. It's just, yeah, because that, that just struck me that, you know, spe- I got to speak the truth and love to you, which basically means I don't. I, I bet you not a lot of love is going to be coming down the pike. It's more like speaking the truth and then demolishing you. I am loving you. Yeah. Right. I am loving you as best. I'm, lo- I'm loving yeah. you the way Jesus wants me to love you by smashing you because you're wrong. Yeah. And I need to speak the truth in love. Yeah. It's almost as though the truth telling is somehow love in disguise. Yes. And Ooh. that's what we mean by love is okay. when I tell you the truth. Yeah. But that's just not how the Bible presents love. And that's not how everyday people understand what love is. Yeah, so that passage is not sort of a license to just go off on people. Right. Right. It's actually the opposite to 
create unity, like you're saying. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right, it's it's right. to create unity, and yeah. in that context, there are these other things that we are to do in this. You know, and it's more behavioral things, being kind to one another, being compassionate, giving each other the benefit of the doubt. Like, these are the things that we should be focusing on, and instead we draw out this thing that we really want to do, which is just tell people our opinion, call it the truth, and then say we're being loving. Like, yeah, it, it, it's a get-out-of-jail-free card. Yes, exactly. It's it's like Galatians, you know, one of Paul's letters. Paul's really angry in Galatians, and that's sometimes used as an excuse for people to, I'm just going to be leaning into you because you're wrong doctrinally and I'm just going to smash you. Hey, that's what Paul did. But Paul was really after unity even there. And I think I think that's a really good point. He's, yeah. he's into unity. Well, it, what it did for me was I, I really like language. And I like that, you know, the Bible allows for these multiple interpretations. And so, one of the things I kept thinking of was, like you said, the emphasis tended in my life to always fall on the truth, mm-hmm. telling the truth in love. Like, that was always the afterthought. Yeah. But what if we talked about telling the truth in love in the sense of, are you in love with the person mm-hmm. that you're giving your opinion to? Okay. And if not, then that's not legitimate. Like, the truth that's coming out of your mouth isn't actually true. So, love matters more than speaking... Your opinion. Your opinion in a sort of loveless context, just like right. I have to get the truth out there. And I just tell it like I see it. Yeah, exactly. I just got to say it, yeah. right? Okay. And love isn't... You just ruin most Christians' lives by that. If they I hope so. Yeah, that's I goal. hope so. Yeah, you know, and it's also it's also taking a look at what we mean when we say doing something in love. Like we think we can be kind of jackasses to people and then just say something in a kind way, and somehow that's going to be what it means to love someone. Or like passive aggressive. Right? Yeah. Like when well, the really South, right? The phrase is like "bless your heart." Bless right? your heart. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that gives us kind of like. You know, kindness or nice ways of talking covers yeah. over a multitude of sins. Or, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm praying for you, <laughs> brother. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those prayer groups where uh, it's really a gossip session. Yeah, it just went through the prayer chain real fast. Can you, yeah. can you pray for my daughter? And then I just go on and tell you all the reasons that I'm ashamed and embarrassed of her. Yeah. Okay, okay so uh, love matters more. And now we're talking about speaking the truth in love. So... I mean, I know Pilate says this too, but I'm going to say, what is truth? Like, what does that mean? Because that means different things to different people. And it's not one of these concepts that's like easy to define. It's really sort of a little bit, it's at least multivalent, not not really slippery, but it's multidimensional. It can mean different things in different contexts. And, and, and um, yeah, I think that may cause some of the problems here. So Yeah, I think that it's important to recognize, you know, this is actually a surprise for me. I wasn't, I wasn't looking for this when I started writing the book, but I went through and tried to track, well, how does the Bible actually use the word truth? How does the Bible actually work? Wait. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's who's my this, book. Who's the center of attention now? It <laughs> um, <laughs> lasted five minutes. I think it did pretty well. No, no, tell us more about your book, Jared. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so if we look at how the Bible actually uses the word true— we might be surprised that it doesn't mean a, like a mental assent to the accurate representation of reality. That's not actually how the Bible talks about it. So, the most common use when we with the Bible translates in English the word true is actually used to function more like faithfulness or trustworthiness. So, if you say, you know, my heart is true, that's kind of that idea of this faithfulness or trustworthiness. So, even the, the first use of the word 
truth in the Bible says, Then the man bowed down and worshiped the Lord, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. It's in Genesis chapter 24. And they didn't even translate it truth there. But mm-hmm. that's the word most commonly translated truth right. as well. So, it's, it's trustworthiness and faithfulness. It's, you know, being, uh, having fair and accurate testimony in a legal sense mm-hmm. of giving that uh, sense there, which is kind of like truth. Um, and then it's also ethical behavior. When someone's behaving true. So, you know, in Proverbs chapter 8, it says, my mouth speaks what is true. Now, do we mean something accurate? No, the second says, for my lips detest wickedness. So, there's an ethical relational dimension to truth built in. It's baked into the idea of truth, that, those words in the, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Mm-hmm. So, the idea that truth is accurately representing reality is a very modern notion. Mm-hmm. It really doesn't show up in the Bible at all. Right. But that tends to be what we focus on. So, when I say I'm telling the truth in love, it's not that I'm trustworthy, that you can trust me, that I'm not lying to you. It's that I have the correct and accurate views of God in my brain, mm-hmm. and that's what I need to tell you in and, love. And it's a loving thing to tell you that by any means necessary, right. including uh, putting you on the rack and stretching you. Right. <laughs> exactly. Right, yeah. Right. Emotionally right. or literally in the mm-hmm. history of Christianity. So, truth has an is, – is really – not to overstate – is an ethical – I mean, it, it means different things, but there is a serious ethical component in the Bible that yeah. deals with how you treat people and being a trustworthy person. Yeah, right? it's much more ethical and relational than it is mental. So, I wonder – I mean, you know, Jesus says, you know, the truth will set you free. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think that means? Well, that's interesting that you say that because I give a lot of thought to that partly because, you know – my daughter's name is Aletheia, uh-huh. and we named her that from that verse, which is in John chapter eight, which is a Greek word for. Well, yeah. it's well, it's we spell it with an e uh-huh. because the the word in that in Greek for truth is Aletheia with an a, but the Greek word for tr- for freedom is Eleutheria. Oh, okay. So we combined truth and oh, freedom cool. yeah. into Aletheia. And that's, that was another one of those where I began Only to, you would do that, Jared. I'm I know, pretty convinced. So I, nerdy. That's, like, that's even beyond what homeschooling parents do normally. It's not, it's not <laughs> Jacob. Hours and hours. It's not Jehoshaphat. It's just, let's look at the Greek. Okay. Yeah. But, but it's one of those verses that I was able to flip in my head and I finally got excited about it again because I grew up thinking, you shall know the truth. And if you have this mental idea of what God is actually like, you're going to find some freedom. But the problem is it didn't work that way for me. Like, the more I attempted to get accurate views of God, the more I felt trapped. And I was in a community where they were just policing our beliefs all the time. So, I started to think, well, no, maybe Jesus is giving us a litmus test for what is true. Ah. You shall know the truth and it will set you free. So, if it's not setting you free, that's not the truth. Mm -hmm. So, what if we flipped it on its head and started saying, does this give me freedom? Does this liberate if not, I can discount it as not true because Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So, being able to flip that on his head gave me a lot of freedom and a lot – it just it started exciting me again rather than constricting like, okay, in order to find freedom, we have to go search for this truth which is an accurate view of who God is. So, you have to contain the creator of the universe in all God's mystery and when you get that, you'll find freedom. Well, that is an oppressive task. <laughs> so, is it like – Freedom to explore 
and maybe to be humble about what you don't know? Is that a freeing thing? Or I'm still getting sort of hung up because I've heard this a million times, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm still getting hung up on the truth. We'll say, you know, every every corner of theology or is it more like a relational thing, knowing God or knowing Jesus or something like that? Or Well, again, if you look at how does the Bible use that word, aletheia, truth, it's not often sort of getting things right. It is this ethical, relational, being a trustworthy person, you know, having these it's, – it's more of a wisdom word mm. than a mathematical word. Okay. And so, you know, I, I think that's true. When we find wisdom, we find freedom. And I think that's more of the sense in which I would argue that Jesus is after. It sounds very experiential. Yes. Right. So yeah. – yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just – I'm trying to think of like in my own life, just thinking about how wh – what are those times where, you know, we felt free, really, mm -hmm. where – in other words, where theology, let's say, is not an oppressive force that makes us lose our sleep because we might be wrong about something. But right. just feeling a sense of freedom, which I would say, I mean, to use the common Christian language, is feeling like you're in God's presence, sort of accepted as you are, which mm -hmm. is freedom – but, I mean, I can hear the other – I mean, to me, that's – I live – I try to live that way. But I can hear the other side saying, so it doesn't matter what you believe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just whatever. Just whatever sets you free, that's what that's what <laughs> Satan said in the garden. You know, that kind of thing. That's what Hitler would say. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, how how would you – might you respond in love to somebody who who feels that way? Like, no, this has to be this, – this has to rein us in. True freedom. Is this being isn't being reined in and not being able to just think anything that you want to? Right. Well, first of all, that just seems so counter. It's it sounds a bit nonsensical to me. Like, mm -hmm. no, true freedom is in surrender. Like, true freedom is in being a slave, hmm. but just being a slave to God. Like, that's true freedom. I, to those people, I just say, I I really don't know what you mean. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure what that means. Mm -hmm. But if it's, no, you can't just have these. I, I talk about it in the book like, oh, so does that mean we can mean whatever, we can make things mean whatever we want them to mean? And I don't think that's the case. It's more thinking about why do we privilege getting accurate thoughts in our brain over how we relate to other human beings in the world? Mm -hmm. I want to question that assumption. Why is that more important? Why is it more important that my son, who's gay, know that that God thinks that's a God thinks that's a wrong action and a sinful behavior? Why is that more important than me connecting and loving and accepting my son as he is? Yeah, because of course I track with you, but I, I think again we've both heard this many times before. Because mm -hmm. the thing is, well, you're. You don't want to go to hell, do you? Mm -hmm. Not to get off topic here, but that's sometimes that's behind it. You know, that's right. what yeah. after you die, if you're wrong about, if you don't have the truth defined mm -hmm. as, let's say, a non experiential abstraction of concepts of propositions. The test model, where you're going to take yes. a test of what you believe, and if you pass the test, you get into heaven. That's a lot of pressure. What if you have test anxiety and you just can't do it? <laughs> 
But God, I'm so, I know it all. I, I just can't take tests. I just can't take tests. And the thing is, I mean, I say that jokingly, but, you know, I teach college students and there are plenty of students who have legitimate test anxiety and mm -hmm. they just don't – they can't perform well in those kinds of settings. So mm -hmm. that's a very Western model, I guess, too, isn't it? Like a modern Western scientific post-enlightenment kind of blah, blah, blah thing. Well, yeah. 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 I mean, I think – and that's what I'm really going after is – the the very notion that we privilege that over how we interact every day with other human beings in loving relationships. Love matters more. Love matters more than your belief. And, and the other thing too, and I, I talk about this quite a bit, is I think we do a disservice for some reason and in some areas of our life and certain traditions, we think of love as, you know, you just mentioned going to hell. So I get the, some people have told me, well, if you were about to if you, wouldn't it be loving that if someone you cared about was about to take poison, you would go to them and tell them, hey, you're about to drink poison. You're going to die. And to which I would say, yes, if they're a child and they don't know any better, then yes, sure. But we treat adults like children. And I think that's unloving and disrespectful and doesn't take into account that we are dynamic people who grow and learn and develop but I think certain traditions are very static. So, it's, if it's right for a six-year-old to treat them that way, it's right for a 20-year-old. And frankly, I grew up in a tradition, right? So, you can't watch rated R movies, like, ever? Well, no. If Yeah, I guess if I'm telling you as a seven-year-old you shouldn't watch rated R movie, I guess I shouldn't either as an adult. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have the nuance of understanding that people change and develop. So, mm -hmm. yes, if you want to keep the, the child from drinking poison, that's a loving thing to do. But if I'm going to go to my 25-year-old who's an adult – and keep slapping beer out of their hand and telling them it's poison, even though they've had it many times before, mm -hmm. and they've lived, and they're sane human beings who can take care of themselves. I'm not loving them because I'm disrespecting them as adults who can make their own choices. Yeah. So, that would be my, my argument for that, is I think we treat people like children yeah. rather than respecting them as humans who can make their own decisions. Right. And, and in doing so, we keep adults as children right. in a sense, right? So, everybody has yeah. to keep down to that same – seven-year-old kind of level, which yeah. I mean, I, I tell this story many times, but John Levinson, you know, we've had on the podcast, he, he talks about how adults have an adult view of basically any topic, any field, math, history, economics, you know, how to do laundry, anything, but except when it comes to religion, you're still seven and there's something wrong about that. And that's why, you know, love, um, you know, speaking the truth in love, again, that's such a little mamby-pamby verse. But until you start reading it and like taking it seriously, it can actually rock your world and turn – begin making you question some of those theological certainties that we are told we have to hold on to at all costs. Because if you respect people as people who are in process of becoming, which is basically everybody. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, actually, I know a few people this is not true for, but for the most part, you know, it's like people are, in a, are truly in a pro – everyone's on this journey. So maybe to love people means to respect the journey that they're on mm -hmm. and truth and love are really become two sides of the same coin. Exactly. Guess, right? Okay. Exactly. Which is a hard way to – it's much easier as you know mm -hmm. to sort of be an apologist for the truth and just to slam people with it. Right. Yeah. Which is one reason I think apologetics like that doesn't really work. Right. Because it just appeals to one small compartment of our heads, which changes as we evolve as human beings. And then the con the loving context of community is gone. So, yeah. And, I, you know, not to, not to argue with Paul, but if I'm going to try to 
in my mind, if I'm going to accurately represent what I think Paul is trying to get across, if I'm, if I'm translating Paul and updating Paul for today, I wouldn't even actually like the idea that we can tell the truth in love. I would rather say you can give people your opinions in love. Because what happens is we conflate truth with my opinion. And it's too dangerous for me to use that word because my ego wants to always think that my opinion is the truth. Mm -hmm. So, I'd rather get in the habit of just calling it what it is, which is my opinion, which Mm -hmm. may or may not be true at any time about any topic. Or my truth, as many people say. Same idea, right? Yeah. 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 Yeah, It can be my truth, but then then we're relativists, so I try to avoid that. So, I'd rather just say opinion. Mm -hmm. The truth as I see it. Right. The truth as I see it. Exactly. As I've experienced it. Yeah. Yeah. So, that keeps that barrier of humility to say, Because that's what happens is people get so enraged or upset because for them it's so obvious that it is the truth. And so, if you don't don't agree with me, if you don't see it my way, you're in error. Mm -hmm. And there's really only two ways that you can be in error, either willfully or unwillfully. In one, you're evil, and in the other, you're ignorant. (laughs) So, I talk about avoiding this dichotomy between ignorance and evil, which is how we often talk to people. If I already assume that what I'm saying is true and you're disagreeing with me. Mm-hmm. There's really only two options. So, internet. You're, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Facebook See, and Twitter. Exhibit A, <laughs> anything that starts with www. <laughs> but that's, you know, you can't escape that logic, really. That's how we operate. Well, if I'm true and the truth is obvious to me, then if you disagree with me, it's either you're so dumb you don't get what's obvious, in which case you're ignorant mm-hmm. and you're a fool, or you see that it's obvious, but you're willfully disobeying the truth right. and you're evil. So, when I'm interacting with you by standing on, I always have the truth, I'm already setting up an economy or a situation in which you have to be either evil or ignorant to disagree with me. Mm -hmm. That is not a very communal, relational, loving way to approach a dialogue. So much is at stake, Jared, with being right, isn't it? Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life, and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago, and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose, and it's just my throat hurts, and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double-action combination of prescriptive-strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin-D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, 
Their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes, but we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. I mean, that's, that, that's again, no. part of the whole... I know, but that's sort of the whole... Um, but but again, well, uh, wittingly or unwittingly, that's what we've been sort of sold. Right. That's what's been marketed to us that right. the truth is what matters. Everything else is. But how place. how oppressive is that to think that it's your responsibility? For some people, it's not oppressive at all, right? Because they know they have it, right? Right. right. But it it you get to a point where something happens in your life. Right. Where it's like okay, I. <laughs> But who, Maybe you know, I don't really know what I thought. Who I are we to think that we're the ones responsible to steward the truth of the universe? Like, why do we take responsibility for that? Like, I'm not resp- – it's baked into evangelicalism. I think it's the sense of guilt, and I mean evangelicalism in the, in the broadest sense right. of evangelizing, mm-hmm. right? That's how we motivate people to evangelize is we make it your responsibility to save people's eternal souls. Mm-hmm. That, I reject. Mm-hmm. One, that gives us too much power, but the flip side of power is responsibility, as Uncle Ben has told us. So, if we have this responsibility, then, like, I don't understand how that doesn't become either, either like you said, we know we're right, in which case it becomes too much power, mm-hmm. or we have cracks in our foundations and it becomes too much responsibility. Mm-hmm. Neither one of those seem healthy to me. And yeah. it's all to prop up this machine of selling a product. And some of the, I mean, getting into the Bible a little bit, some of the problem comes from the use of certain verses, like, you know, speaking the truth in love, or um, bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth, for Mm -hmm. example. And gospel is defined as... Thinking true thoughts about God. Yeah. And, you know, getting into themes that we've talked about in this podcast, because this fits right into that, is... Uh, how do I put this? How how loving is it to use Bible verses against people that may have meant perfect sense in a particularly small environment of a couple thousand years ago and not in the world that we live in today? And I know I just want to caution people, like when I put it that way, it's like, Oh, like we're so far advanced. It's not really advanced. It's just we are different. You know, our our world is not limited to the Mediterranean world for the most part. Like, you know, Paul didn't care about Canada. Who cares about Canada? I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know, it just – it wasn't like – it that was not really part of the mindset. So, you know, for example, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth as the book of Acts begins – that actually happens at the end of the book of Acts because it got to Rome. That was the ends of the earth. That's the mentality. It's like mission accomplished. That doesn't mean it can't go elsewhere. But, you know, we, we privilege the, t- the, the, Paul, the Pauline paradigm of 
going and debating and going to synagogues and, and convincing people and this and that, whatever. And, you know, maybe part of loving the people around us is realizing we just live in a more, I don't know, cosmopolitan existence now where, you know, we have people all over the world at our fingertips at any moment. And it's hard to think of a relatively small patch of land, so to speak, as being the center and hub of everything that means anything. And, you know, I, I guess I, my point is that I think maybe the idea of loving and speaking the truth in love has to take into account that we're not living in biblical times. And I say that as somebody who loves the Bible, studies it, teaches it, keeps teaching it, but also realizing there's a distance between this story and who we are now and how we're living now. So that question, mm-hmm. speaking the truth in love, that's maybe something we have to keep settling for ourselves again and again and again and again. That's not just one meaning in the Bible someplace. Right? Yeah, and that's why I like the idea of love. It's because it's a concept that actually evolves with culture. Hmm. It's, it is, it's one of those things, it reminds me of the horizon. It's always out in front of us, but every time we get a little closer, it changes. Because our knowledge of what's, you know, thinking about the fact that a few generations ago, what parents gave their kids to be healthy because they loved them, when in fact they were kind of, you know, setting them up for diabetes or heart disease Captain or Crunch something. Crunch <laughs> exactly. Part of the nutritious breakfast. Yeah, you know, we didn't know any better. And, and again, not to be, you know, to use C.S. Lewis's term, not to be uh, chronological snobs yeah. that we're better somehow or anything, but it just goes to show that our, we can only love insofar as we have information and knowledge and those, that's all changing too. I mean, mm-hmm. truth is changing and developing. Yeah. So, I like the idea that truth is still something we pursue. Can we all agree that what we're pursuing is love, that love matters more. Now, all it does is set up the next question is, what does love mean? Mm-hmm. How do we do that? Um, and I think that's the worthier question. I think that's the worthier dialogue and pursuit. I don't have the answers to that, mm-hmm. but I think it's a better question than what's true. That's, yeah. a, that's a less interesting, less powerful, and less important to me question the older I get. And the corollary to that is, what do you believe? I'm less interested in that question, too, mm-hmm. because it's directly tied to that question of what's true. And by that, we mean what let's get a handle on the objective reality that is the universe, because we don't like not knowing. We like to be in control of things. And that's just not an interesting question to me. Stay tuned for more Bible for Normal People. Hi, everyone. I'm Elia Vasquez from Mexico. I'm part of the producers group here at the Bible for Normal People. This podcast is brought to you by supporters on the Patreon platform. For as little as $1 per month, you can be part of the group that brings this podcast to normal people everywhere. And you'll benefit from lots of resources at patreon.com slash the Bible for Normal People. I love this podcast because it has done so much to help me understand the Bible in a way that brings me relief and peace in my heart. If you're grateful for this podcast, please do consider supporting Pete and Jared at patreon.com slash the Bible for normal people. One group we want to thank in particular is our producers group who continue to help the podcast improve and make it what it is today. So thanks to Jeremy Jones, Dave Carlton, Jonathan Beck, Lucas Gibbs, Rachel Taylor, Brock Beasley, A. Todd Rivetti, Lila Fry, and Jennifer Lambert. The Bible for Normal People couldn't happen without you. Now, back to the podcast. Thank you.
more we look at the universe, the more objective reality becomes a real question mark. You know, yeah, not, not to get into all that, but we had a podcast recently with Ilya Delio that was yeah, it's pretty darn interesting. Yeah, I mean, the further you go down that rabbit hole, you realize the objectivity of it all is, starts to come unraveled. Right. And people, well, it's all relative. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe there is a relativity about that. Not, a, not an think, Einstein relativity. Think, you know, I mean, just maybe <laughs> Einstein there is, had something to say about because that. Because we're humans, maybe there is a relativity to this. Maybe there's a context to everything, you know. So. Well, it's a limitation. Yeah. And I think that's that humility, mm-hmm. is understanding there is a barrier, a filter between how the world actually is and how I perceive it. And the more that's scary. I think people don't like to acknowledge that because it feels a little bit like walking around in a room with the lights off and you're going to bump up against things and you're not going to know what things are. Mm-hmm. But just because it's scary doesn't mean it's not accurate. Right. And I think the history of thought, both science and philosophy and these over the last few hundred years have come to this understanding of, oh, crap, I think we're in a big room with the lights off. Mm-hmm. Just because we don't like it doesn't mean we get to ignore that mm-hmm. and just keep you know, going forward with this other understanding as though somehow we get at objective reality, which usually just means the people in charge get to define what that means. The people in power. No, there's no question about that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think you tell a story early on in the book about the elephant. Mm-hmm. Tell yeah. a story. Yeah. So, it's, I mean, it's a classic story probably many of you have heard, which is, uh, it's kind of a parable of you have these uh People, I think I always think of them as Indian because there's an elephant in the story, but I guess they wouldn't have to be. But they're in this village, and they're blind, and they go out, and uh, they run across this big object, and one of them you know, feels the leg of this object, and uh, they don't know what it is, but they think it's a tree trunk. you know. So they'll say, oh, I, this is a tree trunk. You know, It's a tree. We can go around it and all that sort of thing. One of them, and I probably am just making it up because I change it every time I tell it, but someone else comes across the, the side, the torso of the elephant, just you know, smack against this big thing. Say, oh, no, it's a wall. We've got to climb over it. It's, there's a wall here. And you know, someone else says, oh, it's okay. I found a rope. It's the trunk, of course. Um, you know, we can just climb up the rope to climb over the wall. Well, they're getting pieces of this bigger reality. And it turns out to be an elephant. And so, in the book, I make the point that I think we've all heard that story, but the thing that kept bugging me about the story is we assume we know it's an elephant. The story only makes sense if you know it's an elephant. So, as I read it, I'm positioning myself as someone who is has the God's eye view. Mm-hmm. What happens if I don't actually know it's an elephant? What happens if I can't get outside of that perspective and I'm one of the blind men? I'm going to be thoroughly convinced and I'm going to die on the hill that this thing is a wall because that's the only part that I can experience. So I think it's important to recognize the limitation of that story, mm-hmm. which is we're still getting the God's eye view that it's an elephant. Mm-hmm. You know, that could be an unsettling story, again, right. for people who – I mean, I say this sympathetically. People who have been taught or are used to thinking that, well, we do have the God's eye view. That's what it means to be Christian or something. Right. But to be – to, to, to have that taken away, so to speak, which can, I think really only happen with experiences. Like it, you just, that notion just washes away quickly. And to realize that the God that we have may only be the trunk or the tail or the side or the legs or whatever. And to come at the relationship with others with that sense of humility. And I guess, I guess speaking the truth in love means having humility about truth defined in that one particular way mm-hmm. of knowledge, let's right. say, right? Yep. And not ethics or wisdom or something. But, yeah. And that's, I mean, that's not, that's not, 
Oh, Jared. That's that's just the kind of thing that liberals say, man. I don't know. <sighs> yeah. You're so oh, disappointing, actually. <laughs> disappointing. Yeah. But is it a liberal thing, really? I mean, well, that's I, the, I yeah. don't think so, is it? I and would just argue it is, it's, it's just – it's where we find ourselves. But, you know, when you say that, I think it also points to the value of diversity. Right? And I remember uh, the episode we had with Joe Gordon who talked about the importance of diversity to get to objectivity, which is – if, what, if objectivity is putting the puzzle together and every perspective has a piece, wouldn't we want all the pieces? If what we're really after is objectivity, if we want to know it's an elephant, the scientific method tells me I need to know about the guy who thinks it's a rope. I need to know about the guy who thinks it's a wall. And then when I start to put all that together, oh, I start to make sense of the bigger whole. Mm-hmm. But that only happens with diversity. If the guy who thinks it's a wall just goes back to his village and convinces everyone it's a wall and then goes back and has everyone touch the wall but doesn't let them explore anything else. You can only see this part. And then they're fighting with the people who think it's a rope and then they're fighting with the tribe who thinks it's a leg or, or think, you know, thinks it's a tree. Mm-hmm. They don't ever come together and see this bigger, beautiful picture of what it might actually be. Mm-hmm. Now, some would argue at some point we get to realize it's an elephant if we put enough pieces together. And some would argue, I don't think we're ever going to figure that out. Mm-hmm. I, that, for me, is kind of not – it's irrelevant. It's more about the process of gathering the information. Because even after the information's gathered, we still might only have 100 pieces of a 1,000 pieces. Exactly. Yeah. Which means it's foolish to take like four of those pieces and say, this is the truth. Right. Exactly. This is it. Exactly. Yep. But how can you know if you're right, Jared? This is and the that's question, the problem right? is we don't have the box that tells us how many pieces. Right. I so know. your four may think you may think it's a four piece puzzle. Or it might be like, oh <laughs> it's a, it's the God puzzle. Infinite pieces. <laughs> Infinite pieces. And they get added all the time. <laughs> yeah. And they're not bound by time or space either, so knock yourself out. And that's but. where science can actually really help us, those of us who are into thoughts of God and faith, is they keep being open to the fact that there are more pieces to the puzzle. So we talked about Einstein earlier. That was one of those where somebody, Einstein just dumped a thousand more pieces into the puzzle. And they were just like, oh, okay, here we go. Like every generation of science has these pieces that just keep getting dumped. And they figured out a way to do their work and to find meaning in their work, even though there's no end in sight. I mean, when does science end? Yeah. When do we know everything about the universe? I don't think there's any scientists who think we're going to get there. And that doesn't lead them to despair and say everything's relative. Why even bother? It's because it makes real tangible differences every day. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this pie in the sky, uh, like literally, if you like pie, you might think that pie in the sky is like heaven. Um, Idea that we, it's all about the afterlife keeps us from understanding. It's this perfectionist view that somehow we're going to cross the finish line. Mm Mm-hmm. But the problem with our world, if we accept science and evolution and all these things, is we, there's no finish line. Yeah. And we have to accept that mm-hmm. and learn how to find meaning within the process. And if you're raised to think that the purpose of religion is to give you that finish line, this is not an easy thing. And all this started us just starting to talk about speaking the truth in love. <laughs> right. And how relatively complicated – and what well, not complicated, it's just – it's not as determinative as we think it is. And truth means different things. It really does. It's not just like, you know, babbling on and trying to confuse people. And love means different things. So, Well, if we start yeah. pulling back the layers of all the things we've inherited, 
You know, like, I think it'll be surprising for people to realize that when they flip through their Bibles and, and read the context of the word truth, it really doesn't ever mean, it, it's hard to make that idea of an accurate view of God fit into the context. Mm-hmm. But that's how, for me, I would have always just grown up and just went right on by it. And I would have imputed that idea right into the text. So, when we start peeling back the layers of our own cultural conditioning, it starts to be a little unnerving. It, it does take time to kind of unpack truth and love and the Bible and what does it mean to be true. So, so I, it brings me back to a lot of the conversations we've had when we say like, Somebody will write in, and we had these question and answer episodes where they'll say, like, well, is the Bible inerrant? And we just kind of like, oh, my gosh. Like, we have to unpack so much. Right. It's not as simple of yes or no. And mm. sometimes I feel like people try to push us into that corner. Well, it's a simple question. Yes or no? Yeah. It's like, well, it's no, not, it's not a simple not question. No. <laughs> it's a very convoluted question. Um, and the problem is when we think it's a simple question. Right. So, okay, we've talked about the Bible a bit. Are there other stories in the Bible that maybe, if someone were to ask you, like, what's your book about, and talk to me in a Bible verse or a Bible story, like, are there others that might come to mind that you use in your book to sort of illustrate this idea? Yeah, I mean, I use a lot of passages from Paul, but I think, you know, one of the the things I talk about in the book is the Bible, and I use as a paradigm Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, and I think more and more I see as paradigmatic this notion that, uh, or, or the, the phrase that Jesus uses, you have heard it said, but I tell you. Mm. And, and in the context of, if you read the rabbis and this dialogical way they went back and forth with their tradition, I'm getting more and more comfortable with the idea that Jesus is changing the meaning of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really important way of thinking about how we interact with our Bible, because it's there, it's set, how dare you mess with it. And yet, here we have Jesus, and we have examples of Paul too, but I wanted to pick on Jesus, have examples where he says, well, you have heard it said, and then you'll quote a passage from the Hebrew Bible. And he says, but I tell you. And then that but is a little misleading, I think. The but in that, we make it think like, oh, he's either he's negating the Old Testament and saying we don't have to do anything that the Old Testament says anymore, or he is endorsing it, and we have to do everything that it says anymore. Mm-hmm. I think those are both bad options, because in the context of how rabbis would have interacted, it's they wouldn't have seen it as negate. No one would ever think to negate what came before it. I mean, Jesus says it at the beginning. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Mm-hmm. And so, we have to, what does it mean to fulfill the law? Well, it seems like that's what Jesus is doing in this retelling of these passages and these socially accepted norms of what God wants from us. He's repackaging him. And in, I would argue, in a lot of ways, that's what it means to fulfill. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. to repackage it. And so... To change the meaning. To change sense. the meaning right. for our mm-hmm. own context, to keep it alive. It, right. It's not right. to negate, nor is it to wholly endorse. It's in that messy middle that we are fulfilling. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I take that too. We talk about this. I think we've mentioned this passage, but, you know, in Matthew, where he says, you know, out of Egypt, I've called my son. And then he says, you know, in this way, the prophet Hosea has been, it's been fulfilled Mm -hmm. here. Well, he's that same way, like fulfilled, really? Mm -hmm. Because if we go back to Hosea 11, it's clear he's not talking about Jesus. Right. So, in what sense is this prophecy fulfilled? I thought, oh, well, Matthew's changing 
the meaning of Hosea to fit his current experience in the same way that Jesus is changing the meaning of these texts to fit his experience. And we see Paul changing the meaning in light of experience. Right. And I thought, oh, that's what fulfillment is, and that's how we keep this whole thing going. Right. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Old People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week, and I was trying to reflect on why that was. And it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital, and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that. And it's been coming out in all these wonky ways, and that's exactly what therapy can help with. That's really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy, and I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way. And that's what therapy does for me. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BNP today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BNP. Yeah, it's a very different way of thinking of fulfillment, not as like a prediction or something. It's just right. the, the obligation we have to bringing this text into a vital conversation with our current moment, right? right. Which gets into questions of truth. Right. You know, I mean, speaking the truth in love might mean you need to accept your gay son. Right. That might be the truth in love, even though I don't think the author of Leviticus would ever say that. Right. Yeah. yeah. And Paul probably wouldn't either. Right. He would have maybe been a little closer, but, but maybe, maybe not. Maybe, but not super close. No. And then the question, what would Jesus have said? And I have no earthly idea what Jesus would have said, but... You know, yep. Richard Hayes, a New Testament professor at Duke, said, uh, Jesus was Jewish in the first century. He probably wouldn't have been, you know, marching in a gay pride parade, and that's probably true. However, the thing is, a lot of time has passed, and mm-hmm. do we keep having to explore this relationship between truth and love? Is that sort of a big spiritual responsibility to keep doing that with humility and right. and not to slam people with our own little version of the truth, but 
doing that well yeah. is excruciatingly difficult. Yeah, and, and to that, you know, you mentioned things that I draw upon. I, I make a big deal about the golden calf story in Exodus 32. Mm-hmm. It's 32, right? And one of the fascinating parts I love about that story, and you can you can tell me I'm wrong. It's okay. I'm going to keep it You're in the wrong. book anyway. Yeah. Is this aha moment when I was reading this, I don't know how long ago, but I read it and I, I was struck by Aaron's phrase in that. So, we all know like they built this golden calf and... It's an idol, obviously, but Aaron's phrase really struck with me, which was, uh, behold, your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Mm-hmm. So, it's not like, he, for me, I was like, oh my gosh, this isn't another God. Right. This is Aaron saying, this is Yahweh. This is the God who brought you out of Egypt, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's clear. We all know who brought us out of Egypt. It was Yahweh. Oh, this is Yahweh, mm-hmm. right? So, for me, it wasn't... I just, I used to think of idols as like this foreign, like who could ever think of this? Like we have Yahweh who's doing these amazing acts in the world and delivering us. Who would ever confuse that with like a rock? <laughs> but, but Aaron's statement made me think, oh my gosh, like we substitute God for things that we can control and manipulate and put on poles and see that gives us as humans comfort. Mm-hmm. And we call that Yahweh. And so, it just started for me this, and not to quote John Calvin, but I'm going to, you know, our hearts are idol factories that we are constantly, I mean, he didn't say factories, I, know, I, I don't think, a little post-industrial <laughs> age, uh, but the idea that we're constantly creating idols. And I think that humility you're talking about, we have to recognize that, that that's what we do. It's not like we're out here create, you know, we're not out here worshiping Molech, we're doing things and calling that God ordained, you know, we're, 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 <laughs> like the podcast? we have podcasts here <laughs> and saying stupid things like we're the only God ordained podcast. Because by I mean, the way, folks, we mean that we're very serious <laughs> about that. So please keep sending the emails telling us we shouldn't say that. We get an inordinate amount of those. Yeah. Oh gosh. But anyway, yeah. so I think that story is really uh, helpful for me too in the quest for that humility Yeah, to recognize no matter how convincing it looks to me to be God, it's probably just one of those idols. Mm-hmm. That's been my experience. Yeah, and I guess the humility of it all is that I, th- I think it was Mark Twain. I don't like to quote people, but I'm not sure about it. But um, you know, in the beginning, God created man, and like gentlemen, we've been returning the favor ever since. Mm-hmm. You know, God created man in his in his own image, male language, and like gentlemen, we've been returning the favor ever since because we do conceive of God in human terms. The Bible conceives of God right. in human ancient, kingly, even ideas like covenants are are very much part of the reality of international politics of the ancient world. And so, even the Bible itself does that. And I think we need to be willing to not simply adopt those images, but to see what images work in our culture, which is, again, getting back to speaking the truth in love. Mm And it gets really, really, really messy. I mean, actually, it sort of exposes the genuine, authentic messiness of all this. Right. It's not just, again, the the test that we take with the 10 questions, and you have to get at least nine of them right. Mm-hmm. You know, wow, you're you know. from a pretty liberal denomination. Know, you only have to get nine out of 10? <laughs> get 10 of them. You have to get 11 right out of 10. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. You have to say, hey, you forgot a question yeah. <laughs> and add the extra one. <laughs> Oh, God. All right. Well, Jared, I've been waiting to say this for years. Uh, we're coming to the end of our time. <laughs> where can people <laughs> That's find my line. You? Where can people find you on the <laughs> internet? Uh, no. Hey, um, how about this? As we are approaching the end of our time, 
I mean, you actually do this sort of thing for a living. Mm-hmm. Actually, you you have to. I'll I'll tell you about Jared's job one day. It has to do with the mafia and it, it, it like <laughs> a lot of. of negotiating going on. But anyway, Jared has to like bring people together and talk, have them talk to each other without killing each other. Typically, family members. So, um, like, what practical hints or skills or just thoughts can you maybe a couple that you can leave people with? Because it is very hard to do what you're saying is pretty fundamental we should be doing which is speaking the truth and love yeah yeah so i didn't want to i didn't want to completely ignore what i think most people mean when they say speaking the truth in love which really is being able to give your opinion in a loving way and i think you know we're heading into election season and we've been in covid and it's just been so polarizing and no baseball I, and yeah exactly the world's falling apart how can we expect people to get along when there's no baseball so I didn't want to just leave that unaddressed, and so I have a chapter called Giving Our Opinion in Love, and these are just some some tips and experiences that I've had. Again, like you mentioned, Pete, you know, I'm in the room with people who do not get along um, most of my days, and so these are some of these principles, and, you know, it's, it's things that we probably would know if we sat down and, and thought about it, but the challenge is when we're in these, oh, our yeah, emotions right. sort of take over, but, you know, it's things like getting your heart in the right place and understanding what you want out of the conversation. So what am I actually trying to do? And it's, it's really important that we can be brutally honest about ourselves because sometimes we just want our egos fed. I just want to be right. Sometimes I just want to feel, I want to feel validated. I want to feel heard. And some of those aren't even necessarily bad motives. We just maybe go seek it in, in a, in an unhealthy yeah, way. Yeah, I mean, I'm kidding around, but that describes me. I mean, I right. have to check myself 15 times before I get out of bed in the morning. So, you know, some of the things that I try to check on is like, do I want what's best for someone else? What am I going into a conversation wanting what's best for them? Do I want someone to feel accepted for who they are? Do I want someone to feel heard? Do I value my relationship with them over getting them to agree with my opinion? So, checking kind of our motives for these conversations is really important. And then secondly, you know, creating conditions for a safe conversation. Sometimes it's just not the right time and the right place for these. Well, that's when true. You're sitting in front of, you're sitting at the dining room table over Thanksgiving and you're outing your uncle for his, you know, inappropriate comments in front of eight people that he loves. How is he not going to get defensive? And mm-hmm. how is this not going to turn into a huge fight? Um, I just speak the truth the way I see it. Right. That's not, that doesn't work, right? So, yeah. Right. Well, and then the last thing I would say, and there's a lot more in the book, but one that's been really key, which is kind of counterintuitive, is I actually have a real problem with the golden rule. Um, Ooh. And the golden rule is, <laughs> you know, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. The problem is we're not all built the same way. So, you don't know how many family members I have where we get into this yelling match, and at the end— I talk to them one-on-one. He's like, well, I was just trying to treat them the way I would want to be treated. Right. Right? So a classic example is someone who they feel intimacy in a relationship by debate. Mm-hmm. They like to fight. Fighting helps them feel connected. And some people, if you're Enneagram fans, it's kind of the eight, right? The eight Enneagram. Um, but for others, like a nine on the Enneagram, the peacemaker, you come after them aggressively and they shut down. So I had, I had two brothers once where one was an eight, one was a nine, and they had this vicious cycle where one wanted to feel connected, and so he would go after his brother in these aggressive ways, and the other brother would retreat, and he wanted to connect with him, but he couldn't because he kept feeling attract, and we just went round and round. And I said, I sat him down and, and said, I think the problem is the golden rule. You're trying to treat each other the way you would want to be treated, and in so doing, you're doing the opposite. 
Mm -hmm. And so I I like to talk about the platinum rule. Um, (laughs) Okay. The platinum rule is do unto others as I've learned from them that they want done to them. Yeah. So that's that relational language. I got to know how you actually want me to treat you. Platinum, huh? The platinum rule. Okay. You know, because I'm gangster. Yeah. do unto others as you would have them do to you according to the Enneagram. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's more relational, which takes time and energy to know how, like, if I'm going to fight with you, I need to know how to fight fair. And if I'm going to know how to fight fair with you, I need to know what makes you tick. Mm-hmm. I need to know what's going to draw you in so that we can have a good conversation and what's going to scare you or shut you down. And if that's my intent is to shut you down, then sure. But if it's to connect with you and actually have a relationship, then I need to know what that looks like for you. And then I can have that conversation. Which means we have to be in a different headspace than wanting to be right. Mm-hmm. That's just a really hard hurdle. But it's it's it's. I think that brings peace yeah. and brings harmony. And well, not... to do it is really about self-work. Yeah. You, you know, to think that we... We can go into these conversations. You're better off having a boundary and just not going into those conversations mm-hmm. while you do your work right. than to think that right. somehow I'm going to flip a switch right. and not get defensive and not have ego get in the way when I haven't done the work. Well, that list that you read, I mean, which is, you know, there are other things too, but it's like you have to like rehearse that right. in your mind before you go into a situation. I am determined right. to think what's best for the other person. And right. folks, if you're like, well, when am I going to get a chance to do that? You have an internet connection. You have <laughs> to do that every single day. Do it before you comment on this podcast. Let's, let's put it that way. <laughs> well, I, I do have to say this because I did get pushed back on this. You know, I, I talked about some of these principles in a podcast not too long ago. Well, not too long ago. It was like two years ago, I think, on how to talk to people we disagree with. And I got pushed back to say, what about people who often feel like they're the unheard ones in a conversation? Mm-hmm. So I have to say, you know, practicing these things not at the expense of yourself. This isn't advocating doormat theology where you just get yelled and screamed at and you take it. Mm -hmm. There are very appropriate reasons to have a boundary. Respect your own boundaries and respect theirs too. The only thing I would argue is you can have boundaries without being belittling. Right, right. So there are healthy ways to have boundaries and maybe unhealthy ways. And just a quick question before we close. Is there a difference if there's like a power dynamic in the relationship? Oh, absolutely. How does that – how do you – how can you speak the truth in love if you're – not the one in power in a relationship, whether it's work or or teacher and student or something like that. Yeah, that gets a lot Very trickier. Yeah, we don't. Yeah. You probably have time to talk into the dynamics of that, but I think it's still the principles are the same. Of, and I hate to say this because it's the reality we, of the world we live in, but sometimes we have to count the cost. Yes, right. And we have to understand the implications of what happens if mm-hmm. we do or don't. I don't think that's a reason to ever stay in an unsafe situation or to tolerate Absolutely things that are not. inappropriate. Right. But or just having, standing up for yourself. Right. Sometimes you just have to do that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. But right. understanding yeah. the consequence of that and right. having a support system in place and mm-hmm. reaching out for help and those are all helpful things. I think because you can stand up for yourself without meaning harm to another person. Yeah. Exactly. Right. That's the point. That's the thing, which yeah. is hard to do because usually we equate well, usually, but we, I often equate that with. Knocking the other person down a few pegs. Right. But that's it's not, not a zero-sum game. Right, exactly. So. Yeah, I think of uh, – I don't know who said it, but I appreciate the idea that boundaries uh, – is a, bound, a boundary is the distance at which I can love you and me simultaneously. I'll have to write that down. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, folks, listen, that's it for today, but here's the book, Love Matters More, How Fighting to Be Right Keeps Us From Loving Like Jesus. How many pages is this thing? 210. Um, is that a quiz? I guess. It's 211 
Oof. You. That was my one you miss. You lost. That Nine was your out of miss. <laughs> with uh, any pop-up pictures, he has some notes at the end. Not a lot, folks, but he's got some notes. And uh, anyway, so, yeah, buy the book. You know where to buy them. You know what's really helpful is if you write an Amazon review. That's really, really, really helpful. And I say this, you know, when I when I have a book come out too, it sounds like self-absorbed, but it's not. You're actually – you're helping authors by – creating a little bit of buzz for them. And an Amazon review is a really good place to do that. So if you're so inclined, just a few words and a thumbs up would be fantastic from you. And if you don't like it, well, you will. If you don't like it, you don't understand the book. Let's put it that Is that right? Did I just speak the truth in love? You did. Or yeah, I, I think or, you or just you nailed it. Aggressive? You nailed okay. it. <laughs> anyway, so, all right, folks. Well, listen, we'll see you next time. And uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks, everyone. See ya. We're excited to announce that our friend, Cynthia Schaefer Elliott, PhD in biblical studies, but even cooler, current member of the excavation team in Israel and specialist in archaeology and everyday life in Bible times, has agreed to teach a course for us called Everyday Life in Ancient Israel. So, if you've ever wondered what it was like to live in ancient Israel, what was a household like, what kind of religion did actual people practice, and how does that affect how we read our Bible, then this would be the course for you. Normally, we have our courses for around 99 bucks, but we understand that a lot of people are feeling uncertain about things right now, and we don't want anyone turned down for lack of funds. So this course is pay what you want, pay what you can. No amount is too small, but of course, we appreciate your support so that we can keep offering the best in biblical scholarship to everyday people. The course will be live every Tuesday night in October from 8.30 to 10 Eastern Time. However, No need to be there live unless you want to be able to ask Cynthia questions and have her respond in real time. Otherwise, each night will be available for download a few days later for those of you who won't be able to make it those Tuesday nights in October from 8.30 to 10 Eastern Time. To register, just head to PeteEnds.com front slash everyday life. Again, that's PeteEnds.com front slash everyday life. See you there. Thanks as always to our team, executive producer Megan Kamick, audio engineer Dave Gerhardt, Creative Director, Tessa Stoltz. Marketing Wizard, Reed Lively. Transcriber and Community Champion, Stephanie Spate. And Web Developer, Nick Striegel. For Pete, Jared, and the entire Bible for Normal People team, thanks for listening. 